to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Dusan, and my guest today is Chuck Sammons. Chuck is currently the president of the Ohio Poetry Association and a native of Columbus, Ohio. He is the author of two chapbooks titled Stargazer Sweet and Patch Job. His poetry has appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, and he is a recipient of the 2018 Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Award for Poetry, as well as a winner of the 2011 William Redding Memorial Poetry Contest. His writing has been exhibited in multiple mediums, including poster and broadside form, and he has worked hard to expand and connect the poetry community in the state of Ohio. Learn more at chucksammons.com. Chuck, welcome to Poetry Spotlight. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be with you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so it is wonderful to have you. You are the president of the OPA. Um, you have, in essence, helped grandfather this project. Um, you've worked in, not just in the OPA, but you've worked in a whole bunch of different industries, ranging from construction to retail to education. And what, I'm, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you today is because not only do you have a, a wide variety of experiences with your career, but you also have a wide variety of experiences meeting people just you know inside the OPA, writers from all over the state of Ohio. And I wanted to know what you could say about your that experience variety. How has it informed your work? Well, I think ultimately the thread that runs through basically every job I've ever had is communication. Um, I, I've been a communicator in every one of those jobs. You know, when I was uh, working at Kroger in high school as a bagger, you know, paper or plastic, um, following orders, helping people with their groceries to the car, you know, you're asking questions, you know, uh, would you like paper or plastic uh, around your ice cream or your meats? Do you want your meats separate from this, from that? Um, you know, in construction, a successful project relies on good communication. Uh, as you know, in education, you have to be a good communicator. In my day job at the Ohio Geological Survey, that's that's my primary role is to spearhead the agency's communications. And with OPA, it's the same thing. It's communicating information and trying to, to connect with people through that communication. So that that ultimately is the thread that, that brings it all together for me. And uh, the other thing is for most of those jobs, and I, I tell this story from time to time, service, service to others runs in my blood. Uh, I think about, you know, in fourth grade when I joined the safety patrol or crossing guard, whatever, you know, whatever term you want to give it. Um, I love that. I love helping kids get across the street, you know, to school in the morning or, or at the end of the day when they were walking home. Um, and then up, up till now, you know, working in for the state of Ohio, you know, I'm, I'm in service to the public, to other, to other Ohioans. For OPA, I, I love to be of service to the OPA membership and to poets in general in Ohio. So um, those two things, I think, are what really push me uh, in my, in my, all my jobs, and uh, especially now in both my job and my volunteer efforts. Um, how does it inform my work? Well, I, I think I just take inspiration from other people, whether it's from their creative works or just from in conversations that I have with them. I find ways to 
try to find ways to connect with them and, and let, let their experiences inspire me or trigger my own memories of, of things that have happened in my life that I decide I want to write about. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the best impact that it's had on my own work. When you're writing a poem, are you consciously thinking about the reader? Uh, not at first so much. Um, I start to really think more about the audience as I revise. Um, but with usually with the first draft, and I always write my poems by hand first. Uh, I write them in a journal. And then once I feel like it's ready to be typed and, and revised, then it gets typed and I start to revise it. So, but it always gets written by hand first. And for me, it's, it's, there's just something special about writing with pen, um, pen and paper. Um, I don't know, I, I don't know how to explain it. It is just, so there's some sort of like weird karmic chemistry that happens when you're putting a poem down with, with your ink pen. Um, sure. So, but yeah, so it's really during the revision process where I really start to think about audience uh, to a higher, higher degree. Yeah. Do, do you think, do you think the, the techniques you're using, uh, whether it's symbolism or meter or enjambment or whatever, do you think those techniques are different between when you're writing in the journal versus when you're editing? Um. I don't think so. Not for me anyway. Um, you know, I, I write when I'm inspired. I'm not a person who writes every day. Um, doesn't mean I'm, I'm not thinking necessarily about something that I want to write about, but I may not put it down in my notebook for, you know, a couple of days, but, um, I'm one of these people who likes to let things kind of stew for a while. You know, especially if it's if it's not so much a poem, but it might be a line, or even a phrase, uh, or even more basic, a concept, like you know, just an idea that I want to write about. So, I will let things just hang out in my brain for a while before I decide, okay, I'm ready to write about this. Um, and by that point, I may have some of those elements in mind that I want in the poem, you know, like metaphor or rhyme or, or whatever. But um, I think when it comes to the formal elements, like rhyme, meter, uh, line structure, stanza structure, that stuff usually comes later too. I, I'm not consciously thinking about that per se when I write out a poem initially. Um, I think, I would guess a lot of poets are, are like that. You know, I, I would say, most of the poets I know anyway, don't necessarily always set out to write a sonnet or, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those things that you really have to decide, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. Um, forms were never my strength. And so I don't even think in form from that, from that standpoint, but sometimes that'll come later, you know, that revision process will reveal, Hey, this poem really wants to be this. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. And, and I'm, I'm drawn to that because it's, it's a much more personal thing to handwrite a poem. It's much more personal to have it in a notebook you can, you keep by your bedside or in your desk or whatever, versus I throw everything into a Word document always. And I'm always working from a Word document, you know, 
sometimes three or four different Word documents. I'm throwing stuff around and like moving things. Um, and it, it feels much more deliberate. And so I was curious, you know, if, if the craft was perhaps more deliberate because of it. Yeah, I, 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 I like the feel of a pen in my hand um, versus typing on a keyboard. Not that I'm averse to typing on a keyboard, but if you give me one option or the other, I'm gonna take the pen and the notebook every time. Um, I just feel like there's, there's, a, there's more of a connection there uh, for me to what I'm writing. And again, it's, it's you know, it might be archaic, uh, some, my way of thinking about it, but I just feel like it's a, just sort of a magical thing that happens when that, when that ink flows out of the, the, the nib of the pen onto the, onto the paper. And I like the sound of it too. I like the sound, and I use a fountain pen typically when I write. So, um, and that's because I, I, I like the way that the, the weight of the lines, you know, how they look when, as I'm writing on paper, I like the sound of the nib against the paper. I like the, the feel of that nib moving across the paper. There's a certain feel to a fountain pen versus say a, a gel pen. I know those are very popular with a lot of people nowadays or even a ballpoint pen. Uh, a fountain pen just has a very different, unique feel to it. And I kind of equate it to uh, <laughs> listening to vinyl, you know, listening to music on vinyl has that sort of warm feel to it. That's kind of how it feels for me to use a fountain pen on paper is it's, it's got kind of a warmer feel, whereas typing on a computer to me is, is kind of somewhat cold and maybe a little disconnected. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just. Old. I, didn't, I didn't mean to ask you so many questions about this, but I do have one more. So, if is there, what about the look of it? I mean, it, it not just like the sound and the feel, but when you see how the words are written out versus when you move it to a word processor, it has to look different. It has to look more mechanical because I've I've been floored sometimes how I'll write really long lines on a notebook if I don't have anything else because I, I prefer typing, but then. I'll put it into the computer and it looks so much shorter than I thought it would. I mean, does that ever trip you up? You're just like, ah, oh, this is this is cold and distant now. <laughs> I think you know what's interesting is um, so there's there's I guess two things. One is um, yes, I am usually a little surprised at, at how short uh, the the lines might be. However, the lines in the notebook aren't always what ends up typed out. Um, you know, a line in the notebook might end up being two lines, but then when it's typed out, it might end up being three lines or one line even. It just sort of depends. And that that's that's something that happens as well when it goes from the, the handwritten page to the first type copy for me is I'm, I'm actively already revising the poem. Um, and so what appears in the first type draft is not going to be the same as what's in the notebook. Um, so the notebook is technically the first draft, uh, whereas the type version is going to be the second and so on. Um, the other thing that I do is I actually have different notebooks. So some of them are um, these little, and I know that the listeners won't be able to see this, but I, I have these little pocket size moleskine notebooks, you know, versus say a six by nine notebook. And so 
if I'm out and about and I'm not able to lug around the big notebook, I'll carry one of these little guys. Well, what does that do? It actually confines you space-wise when you're writing. Your lines are going to be inherently shorter because the lines themselves are shorter. The pages are smaller. And so what I've noticed sometimes is that writing in the little notebook can often make for a much more interesting poem because I have to be much more concise and, and, and thoughtful about what words I'm choosing um, for that poem. And so you, if you go back through my notebooks over the years, you'll see a lot of these poems in the little notebooks are the haikus, the, the, the short ekphrastic pieces that, I, that I've been writing in recent years. Whereas in the bigger notebook, those are the poems that end up being, you know, page and a half, maybe two pages long, even when they're typed out. So there, there's that actual physical um, element to this uh, when you're writing in notebooks of different size and, and with different pens, you know, some pens have finer points than others. The nib that's on my fountain pen is a medium nib. That's how they classify it. Um, to equate that, it would probably be something like a, uh, you know, like a ballpoint pen, which doesn't necessarily give you really fine lines. It's gonna, it's not gonna give you really fat lines, but it's gonna be somewhere in between versus say, you know, a micro, a micro point uh, pen or something like that. So um, all of these physical elements actually can, can for me anyway, affect the way I write. Um, and, and in different ways, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. So uh, if I don't have my fountain pen with me for some reason, well, then I just grab whatever's nearby. But um, yeah, it's, it's a, it, for me, it's, it's, a really, it's a really tangible process, this process of writing um, and the way that, it, that, that I produce my poems um, is just, it's a very physical experience in addition to the sort of mental you know, creative side. So it's, I think that's one reason why I like it so much. That's fascinating. And it's, it's almost a shame because if, if someone's reading your book, they'll never know that that was happening. You know, you, you have the text in front of you and they'll never be privy to any of that experience. Yeah. Unless of course they're listening to our very awesome podcast. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, would you mind reading one of your poems? Sure. So I thought I'd read uh, the first poem that I would read is an ekphrastic poem. And I've been writing these poems in response to the artwork of Alice Carpenter, who is a Columbus-based artist. And she creates these, these works of art that are called monotypes. And um, I saw the first one uh, two, oh, a little over two years ago now and two and a half and uh it just really resonated with me and then once i learned more about the monotype process i found it even more fascinating because no two are alike essentially she'll take a like a woodcut or something and then use ink and glass to create the print well every time you make one you know you're moving the glass it's going to move in slightly different ways. The inks are going to move with it in slightly different ways. And so every time you can make multiple prints from the same woodcut uh, or impression, but they're never going to look the same. And so I was just really fascinated by this. And I, I've since struck up a really nice friendship with her and I've, I've written um, 15 poems in response to her work. 
already. And I, my goal is to get 20 and then uh, try to get a chapbook of those uh, published. Um, or actually what she and I would like to do is publish my poems alongside her, you know, prints of her monotypes and then, uh, you know, get that published as a, as a joint uh, publication. So that's excellent. So this is uh, written in response to a monotype titled Landscape 14.34 by Alice Carpenter. The poem is titled Skeletal. What wild creatures haunt our childhood dreams? Lanky, leggy, gathered hip-hinged beneath a waxing moon. Plotting, plotting, they roamed open fields as we slept unaware. Only in dreams did we dare dance with such devilish beings, intent on dragging our souls into Satan's lair. Or so we were told by Baptist grandparents who tucked us in, held our hands, prayed to a God that lingered somewhere in shadow, prayed that we sleep safely until morning. By the time we grew old enough to trust our doubts, these creatures whose only sin was a longing for our world to see virtue in their otherness have left us. We yearn cling to a past dimly lit, wondering if they still lurk in hillsides, too murky, too foreign for us to trek alone in the blue bruise of night. Thank you. It, it's interesting you say, you know, that you're, you're a man who writes on inspiration and, and I, I'm excited to see what these prints look like because now I see you kind of like walking through a gallery or something like, ah, oh, that, that should be a poem right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think Alice's work is great. And, uh, you know, you can find her online, alicecarpenter.com, and you can see some of the pieces that I've written about, actually. Uh, she has a number of images on her website of, of her work. And, and uh, it's just been a lot of fun just exploring her work and, you know, writing writing these poems, you know, ekphrastic poetry is all about having a conversation with another work of art, essentially. And, uh, you know, it, it's fun to try to, to try to do that as a poet, you know. Um, I don't necessarily try to put myself into, into the artist's mindset, but, you know, I think anyone can take inspiration from other forms of art. It could be visual art, it could be music, whatever. Uh, it's a great way to to break into poetry. Actually, if you're if you're hesitant, you've not really written poetry before. Ekphrastic poetry is a good way to begin to explore and uh, you know find your own voice. So, so when when you're sitting down to have that kind of uh, communication, what do you think goes into that conversation? What what are the important things to convey when you're relating to another piece of work? Because I'm sure that there's some reluctance to put too much of yourself in there because then you're not being generous to the other piece. You know, every piece is different. Um, and there are a lot of very traditional ekphrastic poets who say, no, ekphrastic poetry is supposed to be about capturing 
that work of art in words. It's, it's supposed to be description and that's it. And that's fine for, for those poets. I'm not one of those people who, you know, subscribes to that philosophy. I think that the job of the poet is to uh, take inspiration and let that inspiration um, take you where it may. Um, in this particular poem that I just read, I saw that image and it, it struck a chord of memory for me, you know, as a kid. And um, I, I like to refer to myself as a recovering Baptist uh, <laughs> when it comes to, you know, religious views. Um, sure. I, I, you know, went to Baptist church growing up and sort of broke away from it when I, when I got into high school. Um, but a lot of those teachings, you know, still hang with me. And I've tried to hold on to the ones that are, um, you know, that adhere to kindness and uh, being of service to others. And, and I've kind of abandoned some of the other, the other views. So, um, but, you know, Baptist uh, views can be very strict and they can be very patriarchal. So, you know, those kind of things still hang with me. And I try to uh, grapple with some of that stuff in my work from time to time. And this particular poem did that. So, but then there are other pieces of Alice's that I've written about where it's strictly emotional. It's, it's, it's a strictly emotional response that I'm trying to get onto the page. Um, and there's, there's not necessarily a lot of meaning in a poem, at least not from my standpoint. Now, one of the great things about poetry, as you know, is that uh, poetry needs not only the poet, but it needs an audience, right? In order for it to mean anything, um, you have to have somebody to read it and to, and to interpret it and to find their own meaning in it. Um, this is the essence of reader response theory is that nothing really has any meaning except for the, the reader. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, my, my view of ekphrastic poetry is very non-traditional, uh, like most of my views, but <laughs> <laughs> I hope I answered your question. <laughs> no, you did. You, you answered it great. You did a great job. Um, and, and I wonder how a traditional ekphrastic approach would work with something like music, you know, because that has to be more expressive. You can't, like you, you can comment on the music directly per se, but you know, a, a visual medium, you can, you can describe details. Whereas music, you have to describe the emotional response to every ebb and flow of the music. And, and so, I'm wondering, what do you think that that response would look like? Like, could you apply that traditionalism to everything? Does that like a, a viewpoint that holds up? Well, if you take the example of music, <laughs> my the way I would probably describe it is you're going to say, okay, here's a C note, here's a here's a A sharp, here's a B, you know, like, like <laughs> how many movements, like. Like that's not po poetry really, is it? I mean, you're just telling us, you know, how that, that music is composed. So yes, I think the emotional side of it. And then think about like abstract art, which, you know, Alice's work could be classified as abstract art. Um, well, in abstract art, there's, there's no 
fixed image necessarily, you know, if, if it's not a landscape, like a true landscape, you know, if you think of, of uh, Hudson Valley, you know, painting school, right, that, that movement of artists in, in the United States, very realistic landscapes. Well, that, you know, might be great, you know, it's almost like trying to write a poem about a photo. But if you take a Jackson Pollock painting, right, <laughs> what meaning can, can you get out of that, that that's smacking you in the face? It's all, you know, viewer response. So it might be totally emotional. Um, and so I think there are certain types of, of artwork where you have to take that route. Um, or like with this poem that I read, maybe there's a, a memory of, from your own personal history that you can incorporate into the poem. Um, to maybe, and then maybe that memory will help, you know, I don't know, illuminate a, a bigger idea of some sort. And I think the other thing about this poem when I wrote it was that, you know, at the time there was, there was, there was a lot in the news and even now there is, but there was a lot in the news about, um, you know, anti, uh, anti-immigration, uh, xenophobia, and those types of issues in our country. And so I was just really frustrated with it. And I don't tend to write political poetry. So how was I going to capture kind of what I was feeling? And so in the, in the print that I write about, you know, there are these figures that are abstract. They're not, they're not actual skeletons. Um, they, they look like some sort of creature, you know, they're, they're indefinable really. And so they have this, element of the otherness and you know how do we grapple with that as a culture um some people do it well some people don't um some people don't want to deal with it so this was sort of my way of you know in a roundabout way addressing that larger kind of issue of of the other and how we how we uh interact with others yeah well and you know everybody knows that a joke is funniest when you tell it as literally and explicitly as possible <laughs> and you explain it after the fact and you break it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I was interested in, I'd like to turn to your time with the OPA. Um, you know, you're, you've been president for a while. How long, how long have you been president for? Uh, this is my, well, I'm about to enter my eighth year starting in July, so yeah. Okay. And, and how, how has that affected your writing? Like, I, I, cause I think, I mean, you put on like workshops and you're always meeting people and you're always, you, you know, you, you, you do the monthly readings and you're hearing people talk from all over the state. So did you feel like that shifted your work? Like, did you ever hear someone and go, Oh, that, I do that. And I don't like how that sounds or whatever. I, I, I'm not sure, but. You know, it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier that I've, I, I take inspiration from people in as many ways as possible. And uh, in the case of, you know, being involved with OPA, because before I was president, I was vice president. Before I was vice president, I was secretary. And before I was secretary, I was the newsletter editor. So I've, I've, I've worn a number of hats with the organization, which has really afforded me the opportunity to get to know a lot of people and to learn from a lot of people, whether it's from the workshops or readings. Uh, so that's one way that it might affect my work is, is 
oh, I actually learned something that I didn't know, you know, from this particular poet. Um, but then also hearing people read or um, reading others' work and taking inspiration in that way and seeing how some, you know, poets deal with some of the issues that maybe I'm a little hesitant to write about. Um, I've, I meet poets who, some, some who do a lot of research, you know, like essentially like a journalist, they're, they're doing research on their subject matter and uh, writing poems then about what they learn, you know, like if I have time to do that, that might be something that I try and I take inspiration from those poets, you know, doing that. Um, I take inspiration from other art forms, you know, like, like we talked about a moment ago. So I would say that that's probably the biggest way that it's affected my work. It's, it's not necessarily with regards to, you know, the, the actual process of the writing and revising per se, but I'm in a monthly poetry group uh, with some people that I really respect and I learn from them um, and I get better, you know, my poetry gets better because of them. So, uh, and it's been fun to work with, you know, high school students and other adults who are new to poetry and who, who want to get better. Um, sometimes you can, you know, learn a lot and, and be moved to become better just by, you know, teaching something, right? The old saying is, you know, those who can't do teach. <laughs> so, so, you know, if you, if you're teaching poetry or teaching something that maybe you aren't very well versed in, you're, you're going to get better. You're going to get knowledgeable because you're going to be forced to be not more knowledgeable. So, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, you see, and I know with teaching, you see like, if you get a, a batch of students, oftentimes they'll make as a group like the same two to three mistakes you see it in you know paper after paper writing submission after writing submission it doesn't really matter what it is you know poetry there are cliche phrases for a reason it's because people tend to overuse them and then you know you start glossing over them and those those words can lose meaning to you uh okay that's cool um <clears throat> so do you have what do you what do you think is is dominant? Like, how does your relationship with poetry work now? I mean, do you because you do a lot of logistical work, so you're setting up meetings and and making sure that events are going smoothly and, and, and this and that. So do you think have you do you think that that has changed how you view poetry? Like, do you process it emotionally differently? Is there one that's dominant over the other? Like, do you have a macro, top down view of poetry that is kind of usurped the, you know, down up view, the inspiration creative side versus the, we have a picnic on Saturday and we've got four readers and we've got to make sure all four have the same, and the mic doesn't work and we need a new mic, you know, like, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm fortunate in that, you know, my time working in construction management really helped me develop my project management skills. And so um, I'm also very fortunate to have a brain that's about 50-50 left and right, quite honestly. So there are times when all I wanna do is satisfy one half of my brain. There are times when I wanna satisfy the other half, but then there are times when I've gotta make them both work at the same time. And as the president, 
I'd probably use more of you know the man the managerial skills and uh, communication skills and don't necessarily put a lot of effort into um, the actual writing of poetry. So just as an example, you know, when we have a, a quarterly workshop or a retreat of some sort, I typically don't get much writing done because I'm busy doing other things to make sure that it's all going smoothly. And I'm okay with that. I'm still taking notes. You know, I'm following along. I'm, I'm, I'm doing things that, you know, may help me later when I can go back through that after the event is over and things have calmed down a little bit and I can kind of take the time to really digest what the poet shared. Um, so I do try to do that, but definitely when things are, are taking place, I'm, I'm definitely wearing that managerial hat and just trying to make everything go smoothly. And, you know, one of the things that I've tried to be very cognizant of as the president and, and, and try to put a lot more energy into is to create programming that appeals to a very broad audience. Um, when I first joined the organization, the membership was mostly, you know, older and you had a lot of formal formalist poets and, you know, they kind of like doing things in a very set way. Um, when I became vice president, that was, I saw that as my first opportunity to really start to focus on, you know, bringing some different kind of programs to the, to the organization. And that has carried over during my time as president. And so whether it's uh, a retreat, a workshop, you know, these um, monthly open mics, uh, whatever it is, I think I've tried to help the organization um, go in as many different directions as we possibly can. It's tough because none of us do this as a day job. OPA is run by all volunteers, you know, uh, including me, I don't get paid a dime for what I do. And I'm okay with that. But sometimes it's hard to, to, to express that to people who, you know, are, are demanding that you do more, or you do things a certain way. And it's like, well, we appreciate your concerns, but you have to realize we, we all have lives outside of this. I have a day job, you know, when I work from 8.30 to 5.30 every day, that's where my energy is going. It's going into that job. So you're going to have to wait for me to address this issue until later on, right? Um, <laughs> it's just it's just a fact. I mean, it's just the way things are. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's tough for people to, to hear that. But it's also why I anytime someone has an idea, um, like you did with this podcast, it's like, hey, here's somebody who really actually wants to, to step up and, and do something for the association. Great. How can I help you do that? You're willing to do it, then it's my job to, you know, help you be successful at it in whatever way I can. Um, otherwise, it would never get done, right? I don't have the time to do a podcast. Uh, I probably don't even have the talent and the knowledge to do a podcast. So, you know, it's great when people step up who have ideas but are also willing to actually do the work. It's my job to say, okay, great. What can I do to help you be successful at this? So, sure. you know, that's, that's probably one of my biggest roles. Yeah. So what, what do you give, what, what, what advice would you give to uh, a younger writer uh, who's looking to get involved 
you know, besides joining the OPA, sure. But like, what would you say to them, like networking, getting your work out there? Because there's probably, you know, hopefully there's going to be some people like that listening to the podcast going, you know what, I have some things I'd like to share. I'd like to get to know people. Yeah, there, there's, I mean, I can only speak for Ohio, but I, you know, I think Ohio has a very dynamic poetry community and, and some states, maybe not as much, some states probably more so. Um, but I think every state is probably going to have a number of outlets for people to get involved. And there are things like, you know, open mics at, um, you know, bars or coffee houses. Uh, those are, those take place probably all over the place in, in the United States and beyond. Um, so start going to those. And, and if you're not ready to read at first, just go and listen. Just listen to what people are reading and what they're sharing. You know, identify the stuff that you like. Identify the stuff that maybe you don't like as much. Um, identify readers who have a delivery that you like in a certain way. Maybe you'd like to mimic it in some way, you know. Um, so there's that. There's finding or, uh, you know, monthly groups or weekly groups. There's so much stuff that can be found online now with through things like Facebook and 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 Meetup and you know other social media platforms where people are, are looking for a group to get involved with to learn from. Um, the thing I would say about that is make sure the group you get involved with is is nurturing and respectful. Um, you know, it's not all about beating you over the head with criticism. You know, it's it's about encouragement as well. It's about identifying the things that you're doing well as a as a beginning poet and laying a foundation and then building upon that. Sometimes it's hard to recognize what that foundation is, but if you've got the right people around you in a group, um, then you will, you will identify those strengths and those weaknesses. Um, OPA is great. I, I have made so many wonderful friends in this organization. I mean, if, if there's one thing that has been the most rewarding it's the number of friendships that I've that I've developed over the years, and I've lost friends who, you know, some have passed away, some have moved moved on, you know, moved out of Ohio or or whatever, and are no longer uh, in the organization. But I've got friends that I will have for the rest of my life, and that I, I probably never would have had if I had not become part of OPA. So. Um, and there are local organizations like that. Libraries often have, you know, groups that meet. Um, you can talk to, if you're in high school or middle school or, or whatever, you can talk to a teacher and, that, and talk to the teacher about starting up a, a poetry club or something, you know, in your school. I'm sure a lot of schools have poetry clubs. So there are so many ways that you can get involved. Um, the Ohio Arts Council, if, if you just are more interested in reading poetry and not necessarily writing it, well, there's the Poetry Out Loud competition, which is takes place every year and gives you a chance to recite poetry and, you know, maybe win, win a college scholarship uh, while you're doing it. So there are a lot of resources and, you know, people can always reach out to OPA and our management team if they have questions about a specific part of Ohio and, and getting help, you know, uh, getting connected with somebody in, in their local community. So we always try to do our best to help people out that way. Um, so yeah, that, that would be some of the 
suggestions that I would have for young poets. Awesome. And, and my last question is, what do you think in your experience makes for a good workshop or sem seminar? What really engages people and what? Well, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I often don't write anything during our workshops. Uh, so for me personally, if I've written something, that is a successful workshop. Um, but I think in general, if, if you come out of a workshop more educated and more enlightened about the craft in some way, uh, maybe you didn't write anything, but maybe you've learned something that you didn't know before. I think that's a successful workshop for you as a person. Um, I think if the, if the workshop leader comes out of that event and, you know, we often, at least during, you know, non COVID times, we try to take our workshop leaders out for dinner after a workshop. And, uh, if that workshop leader comes out of it really excited and just really happy with the way things went, because they're often educators in addition to being poets. So they know, they, they will, they will know if things went well. And so if they're excited about it and, and they express that to you, I think that's another way that you can, that you can tell that it was successful. Okay, cool. Thank you. Well, before we go, would you like to read another poem? Sure. I'm going to read uh, a poem, a fairly, very, very, very recent poem, actually. And this, again, was, it's a poem that was inspired by another work of art. In this case, it was inspired by another poem by Hanif Abdur-Rakib. And his poem, All the White Boys on the East Side Loved Larry Bird. My poem is titled, <laughs> On the South End, Too. <laughs> we loved him on the South End, too, where our parents and grandparents identified with hickness. They, too, born and raised in the whites-only hills of Kentucky, West Virginia, deep hollows where there were no fields for football, baseball, just a utility pole tall enough to nail a piece of plywood mount a hoop above a patch of gravel and dirt alongside trailers our relatives still reside in. We loved him because he loved the game. We loved him because when Isaiah offered the olive branch, he accepted it. In my neighborhood, our elders would have broken that branch across their knees, burned it, used it as a switch across our backsides for even thinking about inviting guys like you into their homes. But we knew better, knew the color of a man's skin meant nothing on the court. Only his game mattered. It was the game that bonded us. It was the game that taught us how to be men, to say what you mean, mean what you say, and be ready to back it up when you lace up the high tops, step onto the asphalt, the concrete, shirts versus skins, and take your opponent one-on-one, -on -one, hard to the hoop on a July afternoon, he and the sun double-teaming you, their breath hot on your bare shoulders. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, I love it. 
That's a great poem. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> Chuck, thank you for coming in. It was a real treat talking to you. I really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure. It's always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPI, OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA's blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Chuck, seriously, thank you again. Thank you, my friend. Be well. Thank you.